What God's been saying to me is, is quite strange in one sense, and you're going to have to bear with me, all right? So I'm going to make a statement about what God is saying to me, and then before your mind starts thinking, oh yeah, but what about this? You're going to have to bear with me, and we'll go on a journey together. Is that all right? <clears throat> so what God has been saying to me lately is this, that questions are more important than answers. Questions are more important than answers. And we're going to hold that thought, okay, and we're going to look at that, Liz, and we're going to open it up in various different ways this morning. But I guess with the general election coming up, politicians are renowned for answering a question with another question and not giving answers. And you, as a Christian, if you are a Christian this morning, I you might or not be, but if you're not, then you will be asking, and if you're a Christian, you're asking, should I vote? How should I vote? As a Christian, how should I vote? Um, you know, you might be asking things like, if the candidate is a Christian, does that mean I ought to vote for them automatically because they're a Christian? How should I pray? Should we be even involved or interested in politics at all? And um, I, I could speak about this, but I'm not going to. I, what, we've, what I've done instead is kind of produced, with a lot of resources that aren't original to me, a little f- leaflet for you, which I think is a Christian response to the general election, okay? There's lots more that we could say, but there are some questions on there. I want to give you four guiding principles, okay, in terms of how we should approach this. Well, I, this is what I believe, okay? This is subjective. It's what I believe. Number one, I do think we should vote. I do think every one of us who's eligible to should vote. And there are ten great reasons, many of them biblical, in that pamphlet of why you should vote. All right? So I'll leave that. You read that through yourself. But I think we should vote. Secondly, we should inquire. We should ask. Does that mean we have to understand all the intricacies of all of the debates? Absolutely not. Your vote is valid. Do you know that? Your vote is as valid as anybody else's. But we should inquire. We should ask. What are the um, issues here? What are the parties' position? Please be aware, all right, of single-issue voting. I think it's very dangerous if we get into single-issue voting. And if the candidate happens to be a Christian, does that mean, personally speaking, that doesn't mean they'll get my vote. You may disagree with that, but I want to throw it out. It doesn't mean they will get my vote. The reality is there is not a Christian party out of the main three. There are committed Christians in all of the parties, and there are other people who are not committed to Christianity in all of the parties. It's not like in other countries of the world where it's almost like if you're a Christian, you you should be voting X, Y, and Z. I'm sure that all of us will vote differently at the general election, and that's all okay. So please be aware. Now, if your candidate is a committed Christian and you support their, their policies of that party, that's absolutely great. And we pray for that. That's totally fine. But please don't think that because you're a Christian, you have to vote for a Christian if they are. Because the reality is, many people in this country, and politicians as well, will say that they're a Christian. And of course, that means all different kinds of things. It's very, very subjective. So you need to inquire. There's a website that I've given you. It's a very long kind of thing. Basically, if you go to BBC News, okay, and, and you go on general election... Then you'll get through to that site there. And if you want to, you can say, what do the parties think about X? And you can put a policy in or, or an issue in and you'll see all the different, the main parties, their position. Right? And that will give you really, really good reading on that. The other thing I want to encourage you to do in terms of inquiring, especially if you're from Hal's Own and Rowley Regis, okay, is to come to the hostings on Wednesday night. Okay? Put some questions in. It would be awesome if this place was filled with people of faith and not of faith, but the people of faith care enough about their community to come and to ask questions to the politicians who are going to be representing them. And you might say, well, I'm not interested in politics. You're interested in jobs, aren't you? You're interested in schools, aren't you? 
You're interested in health, aren't you? You're interested in crime, aren't you? As a Christian, we have to be passionately interested in these issues. And these are, like it or not, political issues. People will be making decisions on these issues that are important to us. So please, let's vote. Let's inquire. Really encourage you to come on Wednesday evening. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be here. I go to Albania on Tuesday, which was already booked. So I'm gutted about that. But it would be great if, if, if many of you as possible could be here. And please put some questions into Liz. Ernest Critchley is a retired minister for the United Reformed Church. We're working together to put this event on and he's going to be hosting it. But really encourage you to put some great questions to Liz by email or you can speak to her and come on Wednesday night. Um, also, there's an article at the back, a BBC article called How Christians May Swing the Vote at the General Election. I've just copied a load at the back. I don't agree with all of it, but that's okay as well. I'm just putting it out there for you just to put that into your hands. It's at the back. So we should vote. We should inquire. We should pray. We should pray. Again, there are ten um, kind of things to pray for for your MPs. Okay, in that, in that leaflet. Please think of that. At the encounter meeting a week on Tuesday, part of that, we will be praying for our nation. Remember, this isn't just a local election here that we're talking about. This is a national, okay? There are councillor elections, local MP elections, but this is about the national scene as well. So we'll be praying together. So I really encourage you to come and to pray with us on May the 4th. And then finally, we should act. We should get involved in our community and in some of these issues. And as a church, that's very, very important to us. So I want us just to pause and pray for a minute. Is that all right for, for the election over these next couple of weeks? And, and really pray for us and, and think. And if you don't know who to vote for yet, then that's okay. And you don't need to understand every issue. But say, God, guide me and lead me for me to vote in a way that you would want me to. Okay? And then we will pray. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. God, I do thank you for these men and women that stand. And God, I know that politicians these days, perhaps their popularity and their, their level of respect is possibly at an all-time low. And we understand some of that with expenses, scandals and all of that. But Father, at the same time, your word says that we as Christians should pray for those in power over us. And God, it doesn't mean that we don't challenge certain things. It doesn't mean that we don't disagree with certain things. But it does mean that we do pray. And God, I do believe that the vast majority of politicians, locally and nationally, do go into that because they want to make a difference. I do believe that they do want to make a difference in their community. And it's a really, really difficult job. God, I pray that you would help them over these next couple of weeks. God, I do pray that, Father, you would guide us all to vote intelligently and kind of with a sense of being led by you. And that, God, whatever the result is, God, we're going to pray for those in power over us because that's what your word says. So God, lead us and guide us over these next two weeks. And may there be something significant and helpful that will happen in our nation over these next couple of weeks, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Questions are more important than answers. <clears throat> Thousands of years ago, a very, very wise, brainy guy by the name of Socrates used to wonder, and if you know, if you're kind of my age, you'll think of the Brazilian footballer, okay, in the 80s. That's not who I'm talking about. He was a Greek philosopher. He was probably the wisest, brainiest man on the planet. But he understood that questions are more important than answers. And he developed something which has now been called the Socratic method, which is basically that to educate people and to see people change and transform, you're not going to do that by telling them how much you know. You're going to do it by asking great questions. And by asking great questions, people will then discover answers for themselves and will grow and will develop. Questions allow people to discover truth for themselves. Someone said a person does not believe something because he thinks it is true. 
He thinks something is true because he believes it. Understand that? A person does not believe something because he thinks it is true. He thinks something is true because he believes it. In a novel called Ordinary People, written by Judith Guest, there's a young boy in the novel and he is guilt-ridden over the death of his older brother. And he goes into therapy. And the therapist doesn't do the, I'm going to tell you the answers thing. She or he uses this Socratic method, asks questions. And at the end, the climax of the story is where the young boy exclaims to his therapist, he says, I get it now. I feel guilty because it should have been me that died and not my brother. And then, then he says, why didn't you tell me that? And she says this, you had to say it yourself. See, I believe that life change and transformation only comes when we own it ourselves. When actually that comes because of questions and then we discover something for ourselves and we own it. Questions are more important than answers. Questions allow us to see things differently and achieve different results. Questions help us capture opportunities and solve problems. Questions help us mine the gold out of life's experiences. You know, you go through tough experiences. The question of what can I get out of that? What can I learn from that? Will give you gold out of some tough times. Questions are powerful. They can help us break habits, overcome barriers and obstacles. They can help us uncover strengths and recover our sense of identity. They can help us gain a bigger perspective on what we're looking at. And questions can help us navigate through the seasons and the stages of life. What do I mean? In Gordon MacDonald's book, Resilient Life, which is one of the books that you must read or you're not a Christian. Okay? That's a joke. All right? That's a joke. But it is one of my top ten books and you have to read it. Okay? You must read it. You don't have to vote Tory or Labour, but you do have to read Resilient Life. And he looks at the stages that you go through in your life. And what he does in the book is he identifies some of the key questions that people ask in their 20s, 30s, etc. So, it's not exhaustive. So in your 20s, you're asking important questions like, what kind of a man or woman am I becoming? How different am I from my father or my mother? What will I do with the rest of my life? In your 30s, you're asking things like, how do I prioritise the demands on my life? Now I've got all this stuff going on in my 30s. How far can I go fulfilling my sense of purpose? What does my spiritual life look like? Do I even have time for a spiritual life? But in your 40s, which I know I've got a long way to get until I'm there, but why, why, we asked the question, it was a joke, why do some people, why do some people seem to be doing so much better than me? That's a question you don't ask in your 20s, but you really ask it in your 40s. Why are limitations beginning to outnumber the options? <laughs> Why do I seem to face so many uncertainties? But what could I do to make an even greater contribution to the world? In your 50s, why is time moving so fast? Why is my body becoming unreliable? I'm asking that. I'm not 50. How can my spouse and I reignite our relationship now the kids have gone? Who are these young people wanting to replace me? Will we have enough for retirement? Big questions, aren't they? Huge questions. In our 60s, when do I stop doing the things that have defined me all of my life? Why do I feel so ignored by part of the younger generation? Who will be around me when I die? In your 70s and 80s, does anyone realise or even care who I once was? I ran a business. I played football. I had an attractive face. I could dance. How much of my life can I still control? Can I still contribute? Will God really be there for me at the end? It's huge, isn't it? Huge questions. And what he says in the book is that if you don't answer those questions, 
If you don't look at those questions, if you don't ask those questions, lots of things are going to happen. And I'm convinced that certainly for me and my generation, with my peers, in that whole 40s thing, there's lots of things that happen. Okay? A lot of these are character and stereotypes. And if you've done this, please don't think I'm getting at you. But if we don't look at some of these questions, things happen. We start buying motorbikes. We start growing our hair. We start trying to rediscover our youth. We start getting into clothes that we should not be trying to get into. We also have affairs, get addicted, get so driven that we lose our key relations. All kinds of things can happen if we don't look at the real questions in our life. Now, I don't think necessarily it means you're going to come up with loads of answers because I think questions are more important than answers. So why am I thinking like this? Why am I acting like this? Why am I behaving like this? Could it be because I'm asking some of these questions? What am I going to do in my life? Does my life really mean anything? You've got to face them. Don't fear them. You've got to deal with them. The ancient church fathers spoke about unknowing. They believed that you could learn as much about God from what you didn't know about Him as from what you did. They were okay with asking questions and not having all of the nice tidy answers. In a healthy family, kids' questions are not about answers, they're about relationship. You know the why, 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 why that kids ask. I remember as a kid, I was thinking about this this morning. My mother used to say to me eventually, after I'd asked why so many times, because there are railings around the park. Anyone ever heard that? It's like, what's that about? So I might be asking some deep, profound question. The answer was, because there's railings around the park. All right, that'll help. Do you know what I mean? But it's like, it's the kind of idea that actually when a kid is asking questions, it's about relationship. If you're asking questions of God, it's about a relationship. See, one of my favourite characters in the Bible is Thomas. He gets a really bad press. He's called Doubting Thomas. Yes, he is doubting, and I understand that. But I'll tell you what, Thomas was not so much doubting, he was longing to meet Jesus again. When the disciples said to him, he's risen. He says, well, I wasn't here, I didn't see him. He wasn't doubting in the sense that, oh, I ain't going to believe that. He was longing to see him. He just needed to see him for himself. And here's a statement that I want, if you have life groups this week, I want you to talk about. There are no wrong questions when you're hungry for God. Discuss. There are no wrong questions when you're hungry for God. Now when you're not hungry for God, some of our questions are cynical and full of unbelief and trying to pull things down. That's a different deal. But when you're hungry for God, I don't believe there are any wrong questions. In Mike Iaconelli's book, Dangerous Wonder, again another great book, another great book, He says at the end of one of his chapters, and he quotes, he says this, I'd retreated to the Oregon coast in the States to be alone. Questions of my faith were draining the life out of me, and I desperately needed solitude. He says, one afternoon I took a walk to the edge of the Oregon coast. The sky was dark and menacing. The wind was strong and wild. The water was crashing around the rocks, chaotic and deafening, thunderous. There I stood inches away from the life-threatening waters, and I was frightened. And yet I was covered with a gentle mist soothing my soul, silently awakening me to a presence. And there he was, in the eye of the stormy waters, asking me to come to him. His gentleness was only perceptible because of the roaring waters around me. Give me a Jesus, he says, who meets me in the rushing, crashing waters of my questions. Let me stand precariously close to the dark and menacing skies of doubt so I can hear the fierce and gentle loving voice of my Jesus, listen, who drowns out my fears and stands just beyond my questions with open arms. Isn't that awesome? 
It's that sense of like, if you've never asked God a question, I would doubt whether you have a faith. Honestly. I have got more questions about my faith now than when I committed my life to Jesus when I was 15 and a half. Does that mean that I love God less? No, I think I love God more. Have I discovered more about God? Yes. But do I now have more questions than I had then? Yes. That's all right. God is the God that lives just there in our questions, just with our questions. Don't fear questions. They are more important than answers. But you know, the master of questions was not Socrates. And it's not the modern phenomenon of coaching and life development, all of that, you know, because the master of questions and this kind of approach was our master, Jesus Christ. He was the master at asking questions. And often he told stories that had no real answers and left people more confused than when he began. Because he understood that he, I can tell you the truth, this is it, bang, 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 but you're not going to own it unless you discover it for yourself. That's why in one sense, this kind of method of me communicating is not the best way for you to change. I can, we can raise up some stuff, but if you don't go away and think about things and read the Bible and ask questions, you'll never be transformed. Never be transformed. The best preachers in the planet, okay, here, you will never be transformed unless you own it for yourself. Jesus knew that. So Jesus asked questions like this, can anything good come from Nazareth? Who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? What is it you want, really? Why are you so afraid? Why are you troubled? Did Jesus not know the answers to the questions? Of course he knew them, didn't he? It's Jesus, <laughs> do you know what I mean? He knew the answers to the questions, but he asked it anyway. Why? Remember the lad in the therapist's office? You have to say it out loud. You have to say it before you own it and before it works in your life. And God is speaking to me about two questions that Jesus has asked, which I'm going to look at now. And uh, the first one is in John chapter 5, verse, uh, and it's verse 6. Let me just read it to you, the passage. You, you, you've known it. You saw James act it out a few weeks ago, if you remember, okay, the Bethesda Bob thing. And this is from that story. And this is just a, a great question. And, and God's really speaking to me about my own life and I think about life in general. And it says this, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades, or porches they are. Here's a, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, and he asked him this question, do you want to get well? the question he asked him. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Now I know this story is about a physical healing, all right? And I understand that. And I want to be sensitive to that as well. But I do believe that, that God wants to say to us some stuff about lots of things, not physical healing in this instant. See, I think that's an amazing question for Jesus to ask. A man who's been sick for 30 years, do you want to get well? What a stupid question. Surely the answer is yes, isn't it? And the answer was yes. So why did Jesus ask the question, do you want to get well? Like I've been an invalid for 38 years. He asked it of blind people, do you want to see? Duh. Of course I do. Why did Jesus ask that question? Let me reframe the question and ask you a question in a different way. Do you want to lose weight? 
Do you want to get fit? Do you want to be more loving, more patient, more generous, more kind, more content, more grateful? Do you want to stop having lustful thoughts? Do you want to worry less? Do you want to witness to people at work? Do you want to really serve? Do you want to make a contribution to God's kingdom on God's earth? Do you want to stop swearing? Do you want to stop that habit? Do you want to get well? See, I want, this is what God's saying to me. The answer for all of us is yes and no. You know, in a medical study showed that heart doctors who were going to tell their, seri- they were going to tell their seriously at-risk patients this, unless you change or alter something about your life, like your diet or, or, or whether you drink or whether you smoke or exercise or whatever, unless you alter this, you will die. Studies show that one out of seven people who hear that will actually do it. That's, that's just mind-blowing, isn't it? The doctor says, not, not like this would be a really good thing for you to do. If you don't do this, you will die. One out of seven will actually change that thing in their life. Why, do they want to get well? Do the other six not want to get well? Do the other six want to die? Of course not. So if you ask them the question, do you want to get well? The answer's yes and no. You see, the problem is that there is an inability for us to close the gap between what we genuinely, even passionately want and what we're able to do. Isn't that right? We genuinely, passionately want this, but we're unable to do it. A friend of mine recently lent me a book, which is uh, start, where it's not a Christian book, and it's looking at this whole resistance to change, and i am not read it all yet, but I'm very engrossed in it. But when I know God's speaking to me, it's not when I read a new book or hear a new idea, but when I read or, or li- listen to something, and at that very same time, God shows me a truth in the Bible. That's how I know that God is really speaking to me. Not just a great new idea, but when that collides with something in the Bible. Because i tell you what, there's nothing new under the sun. And what modern stuff can do is to put it in a new way and new words and new ideas and new models, which is brilliant. But please don't think that they've discovered something new. If it's really truth, it's God's truth. All truth is God's truth. And when you see something in the Bible that collides with something that you see in modern culture, for me, I think, wow, God's speaking to me. And what this book looks at is this idea that within all of us as individuals and as organizations and communities, there's almost like an immunity or a resistance to to real change and to transformation. We want it, but something inside of us is working against it. So let me use the example, do I want to lose weight? I'll use me as an example. Do I need to lose weight? Absolutely. I need to lose about two and a half stone, probably three. If I'm really lucky. Do I want to? Yes, I do. And no, I don't. See, this is what happens. What I want, all right? Okay, let's imagine it. What I want is I want to lose weight. What do I do or don't do that works against that? Well, I eat too much. I eat the wrong kind of foods. I eat when I'm not really hungry. And I don't exercise much. So on the one hand, I really want to lose weight. But what I do or don't do works against it. Now, here's the thing. And we all could do that. When we go a step further, what underneath is the hidden kind of competing thing that's causing that whole thing to happen. And and the book talks about it in terms of diet, okay? So what could be happening, all right, is that for some of us who struggle with this, we can't stand feeling bored. And, and, And eating can be a way of kind of clearing that boredom. We can't stand the feeling of being empty. Some food can soothe us because other areas of our life are not quite right. 
The book also suggests that some people can't lose weight because they don't want to be seen as a sexualized object. That's me, definitely. That's the problem. (laughs) But if you think about that, okay, what I want, what I do or don't do, what underneath is really at work here? Now think about it with another example. I want to get close to God. How many of you want to get close to God? Okay, that's what we want. We passionately want that, don't we? We really passionately want that. What do I do or don't do that is against that? Well, I don't read the Bible much. Don't pray much. Sin a lot. Don't really think about what's been preached Sunday morning. Don't put it into... So I'm doing or not doing all these things which are competing against what I really want. And I wonder why I'm not getting close to God. Now, if you stop there, you'll never change. But if you go here... Say, so what is at work? Why, why is that? Is it because actually I, I get bored really easy? Is it because I get distracted too easy? Is it because I fear that if I really do get close to God, I'm going to have to change? And I don't really want to change. And all of a sudden, if we work in this area, all of a sudden there's some energy and some momentum. Are you with me? Do you want to get well? The answer is yes and no. It's like there's an accelerator and a brake that we push at the same time. And I've been in ministry and life long enough now to know that that is true. That is true for me and it's true for the vast majority of us. There are things in my life which I know God's at work in and I know that there's growth in. There's other areas in my life which, which they're not. I want them to change. I want to get well. But I don't because the accelerator and the brake get pushed at exactly the same time. And if you think, oh, I don't believe that's biblical, Paul puts it like this in Romans 7 verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, I do. In other words, I push the accelerator and the brake at exactly the same time. I want it and I don't want it. See, the man at the pool... Jesus says, do you want to get well? Jesus, the master of questions, knows that there could be a break at work in this man's life. He may want to get well and not want to get well. What may be going on underneath? Well, if this man gets healed, he's lost his job. Because he's he's a beggar. That's how he earns his income. All of a sudden, he's got to get up and he's got to get a job. And he might think, well, I kind of want to get well, but actually I don't want it. It's his sense of identity. Who am I going to be now I'm not a beggar? Who am I going to be now? And that's a scary thing and I don't want to be scared at this stage in my life. So there could be all kind of hidden competing things going on. And he asked him the question, do you want to get well? And interestingly, scholars believe that this passage is also also a, a passage talking about the condition of Israel's spirituality at this time as well. See, the five porches or colonnades represent the five books of the law. The man who was 38 years an invalid represents 38 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness. And the truth is, people believe, that what Jesus is getting at is that Israel didn't really want to be spiritually well at all. And he goes on later in the same, um, uh, same chapter in verse 39 and 40 to say this, You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. See, what he's saying is that you have the books of the law and you have all this and you want to be spiritual. You say you want to, but what you do or you don't do competes against what you say because deep down you don't want to be spiritual at all. Because if you did, you'd come to me. Jesus says, because I'm the source of life. Isn't that amazing? How many of us want to be spiritual, but we don't really want to be spiritual because we don't come to Christ and we don't let Christ change us. We don't let Christ deal with us. We don't really 
want to get well. So I want to ask you the question as I'm asking me the question. Do I want to get well? Do I want to get well enough to face the questions honestly and, have, and be willing to deal with whatever the break is? Because if I don't deal with the break, it's going to get slammed down at the same time as the accelerator every single time. There's a second question that God's speaking to me about, and this is just a shorter one in the book of Mark, chapter 8. Again, another question of Jesus. Mark, chapter 8, verse 23. Love this story again. Awesome story. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he'd spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? Here's the question. Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Amazing. We look at that story and think it's really weird. Jesus is walking around spitting at people. In the ancient world, it wasn't weird at all. Because they actually believed in the healing power of spittle in the ancient world. Of course, in the modern world, what we would do when we look at Jesus' healing methods is we would take one of his methods and we would make a methodology about that. We would make a ministry about that. We would even set up a church about that, wouldn't we? So, of course, Jesus had a whole load of different ways of healing people. What we would do in our modern culture is that we would grab onto one of those methods and we would set up the church of the Holy Spittle or the Mud on the Eye ministry or the Reverend Flem's ministry. Or the church of the spoken word. Or the church of the anointed handkerchief. We would do that. And we would reduce it to that kind of shallowness. But you see, this isn't about Jesus spitting at someone. In fact, this instance here, this relationship, is a, is a story of immense intimacy and relationship. That Jesus touched this man. And that when the man then saw, Jesus says, do you see anything? And, and what he saw was he saw kind of people, but they looked like trees. And, and Jesus loved him so much that he touched him again. That's what God's saying to me. That Jesus loves us so much that not only would he touch us once, he'd touch us again. Isn't that amazing? And what God's saying to me is that I'm a lot like this man in two ways. I often see people as nothing more than trees or part of the landscape. When actually they're the centerpiece of God's creation. And the busier we are, and the more stressed we are, and the more pressured we get, the easier it is to walk past people just like they're trees. Alison often says to me, Oh, do you see that tree? I'm like, What? Like we've got this tree in the front garden that's just coming to blossom. And yesterday, this is great, I said, Isn't that tree beautiful? It's just coming to blossom. She nearly died. She said, You saw it. I mean, it's massive, pink, right in the middle. You know, and I said, I saw it. It was a moment in our relationship, do you know what I mean? It's like she sat down and thought, I'll just go, just, you know. But, but often, people, we see them just like trees, don't we? We see them just like part of the creation. And God's saying, Leon, they are the centerpiece of God's creation. Don't ever walk past. You've got to see again. Do you see anything? Do you see people? Or do you just see landscape? The second thing God's saying to me about this is that we are all like this man, where we're touched by Jesus and we do see. But we don't see clearly and we need another touch from God. We need another touch from God. And this morning as we finish now, I want to invite you. Because I do believe that God loves us so much that he wants to touch us again.
And if the guys can come back. And I don't quite know what God wants to do here, if I'm honest, but I want to just talk into it a little bit. And I just believe that, you know, some of us have had our eyes open to what the church is, but now it's a little fuzzy. We can't see it. We're a little bit disappointed. We're a little bit disillusioned. Church just looks like trees. We're not sure. We need to have that touch again. We need God to touch us again so we see the church as it's meant to be. Some of us, even just in our relationship with God, we've been touched by God. How many have ever been touched by God? We've been touched by God, but now the vision is woolly. We don't see God. We need another touch from Him. Perhaps there's a situation in your life and you can't see it clearly. God is so gracious, He wants to touch your eyes that you would see more clearly than you see right now. And I believe that God wants to invite us into that relationship where He asks questions. Do you see anything? And then you might give an answer. And then Him out of grace, graciousness and mercy will say, I need to touch you again. That you would see clearer than you see right now. So why don't we pray? Father, we thank You. God, I just believe it's such an amazing thing that you ask questions of us because that indicates that you want a relationship with us. God, we're not, we're not robots. You know, you're not, just, you're not just like up there, as it were, like a kind of Zeus-like figure that's just declaring and throwing lightning bolts at us and, and, and declaring all these edicts from heaven. God, you ask us questions. You invite us into relationship with you. You said to Adam, why are you afraid? He said to Elijah, who was burnt out, what are you doing here, mate? What are you doing here? He said to Thomas, why do you still doubt? He said to Peter, you know, why have you let your faith drop? You ask questions because you want relationship. And also because you want us to change and grow. And God, I pray that as you ask these questions of us again, do you want to get well? And do you see anything? God, I pray that we would... We would somehow learn to, to, to deal with the break. We would look at some of these hidden things in our lives. Because we do really want to get well. We do want to grow. We do want to know you more. We do want to deal with these issues in our life. But God, help us to face them honestly and openly. And then, Lord, when we know that we're not seeing things clearly, God, help us to say, Lord, please, here am I. Touch me again. Touch me again, Lord Jesus. Touch my eyes that I would see. Give me fresh vision for who I am. Give me fresh vision for my life. Give me fresh vision for the church. Give me fresh vision for this situation. Lord, touch me again, I pray. In Jesus' name.